People don't want to know that we're human. They just want to know we're funny. Yeah, they do. They should know that we were fighting about money before we started recording. Then they'll really be like, their marriage is for real. Why are you putting our business on the podcast? (laughs) They're just like us. Welcome to He Read, She Read, the podcast where a couple of married bookworms discuss what they're reading and learning. Today we're discussing our November buddy read, You Learn by Living, by Eleanor Roosevelt. I'm Curtis. And I'm Chelsea. To start each episode, we answer a listener question. They don't necessarily have to be book-related. They can be silly or serious. You can submit them via direct message on Instagram, at He Read, She Read. That's the way most people do it. Or you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com. Today, our question is from Kim, who, by the way, did all of our amazing graphics and web design. So thank you for that, Kim. But Kim asked us, in the past couple of episodes, you've both referenced reading multiple books at one time. I've often wanted to, but I've never been able to figure out a system that works for me, so I limit myself to one book at a time, even though I really want to be reading at least one other book as well. What are your tips for reading more than one book at once? The impatient multitasker in me wants to know. (laughs) Good preface on that one. Um, I think we've mentioned before that reading multiple books is something that helps us when we're at a standstill with one of the books and still want to be reading. So I feel like it multiplies what we're able to absorb content-wise. Rules of thumb that I follow are one per genre, because if I'm reading two fantasy books or two history books, I get too jauntled, or it's not really the right word, but it, get, it gets too Disoriented. confused. Disoriented. Yeah, it gets Discombobulated. too... Discombobulated. You want some more? No. I'm a thesaurus. No, but it gets too confusing. So one per genre, and then I don't often focus on this when I'm reading just one book at a time, but when I'm reading multiples, I will read to the end of a chapter because then it at least feels I can pick up at a good starting point and also there's a good stopping point. When I'm reading one book, I don't really focus on that. I'll stop in the middle of a chapter. I don't know if that's like a normal thing or not, but when I'm reading multiple books, it's something I focus on just to make sure that I'm stopping at a good point. What's your limit for the number of books that you'll be reading at any given time? Probably three or four, Um, but they're all different genres. So it'd be like a military book, a sci-fi, a mystery, or some other kind of biography or essay. But I would say typically you have one nonfiction and one fiction going. Correct. So normally it's just two for me, um, but I've had up to three at one time. Have you always done that, like since you were a kid? I think so. I, I'm not really 100% sure when it started. Um, I know for sure in college I did it all the time because of, you know, reading for schoolwork sure. and then also reading for just for fun. Um, but I think I started off pretty young doing that, just trying to get as many books as I could. I don't think I started reading more than one book at a time until a couple of years ago. So that's encouraging for Kim and for people who... Um, don't have this as a habit. Yeah. I only read one book at a time pretty much through college. Although I guess if I was reading something for school, I was able to read then something for myself. I agree with you on ending after a complete chapter instead of in the middle of a chapter. I think that makes it less confusing. It's almost like ending after an episode of a TV show rather than ending in the middle and trying to juggle a bunch of TV shows. Yeah. That seems more complicated than watching one episode, switching to a different show, watching another episode back and forth. Yeah. 
I think a good way to start for Kim would just be pick up a book from a completely different genre from what Mm -hmm. she's reading and then just try to read it chapter by chapter and well not chapter by chapter individually but ending on a chapter. It's taken some practice for me and sometimes I find myself I've got a couple of books that I'm juggling, but I focus on one because I'm really absorbed in it. And I think that that's awesome. That doesn't bother me. But I always have one nonfiction, one fiction, and one audiobook going. The audiobook can be in any genre for me, just because it's in a different format. It's fine for me to keep that straight. I've lately been reading nonfiction like right when I get up in the morning while I eat breakfast and drink my tea and then I typically read fiction if I have a moment in the afternoon or in the evening that could be subject to change that's just a routine that's been working for me right now but I think for people who don't read multiple books at a time having one book for one time of the day and another book for a different time of the day might be kind of helpful too interesting concept but I kind of like it Because it helps you compartmentalize in your head. Yeah, and you have to just do what works for you, which is, I think, what Eleanor Roosevelt would say. Good segue. A lot of this book was like, you do you, boo. Uh, Just a little background on our nonfiction November pick. Uh, So it's You Learn by Living by Eleanor Roosevelt, written in 1960, uh, categorized as a memoir, but it more reads as a series of essays on topics from letter submissions that people sent to the White House. Um, I'm a little bit of a Roosevelt aficionado. I watched all of the uh, Ken Burns, the Roosevelts, when I was in Afghanistan. So the cool thing about Franklin and Eleanor is they were the first like people's president where people felt connected with them. It was mainly due to the use of his like weekly radio shows where he called them his fireside chats where you would like have dinner You'd put the president on the radio and he would be like, hey, everybody, this is what's going on in the country and kind of explaining to them what was going on. So that's the cool part about this book is that continued even after they left the White House and she was an ambassador to the United Nations. People would just write her letters because she had been in that role as kind of like a parental figure, but also just a good advice giver. So I, I liked that she explained that in the beginning that this book is born out of letter submissions from regular people. It is very, it's coming from a very maternal place because you get the sense that she really care, really genuinely cares. These essays and these suggestions are coming from a place of caring, like she wants the best for you. That's why she's writing it. But she also includes a lot of anecdotes about being a mother herself mm-hmm. and how she raised her children. Yeah. I mean, we've already done an episode about learning and living, um, which is kind of what the whole, this whole book was about. But the quote that I really liked from her intro was, when you stop learning, you stop living in any vital and meaningful sense because learning and living are basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. So if you're not actively absorbing content or intentionally trying to learn things, you're going to have a less beneficial life is what I took from that. And I think when she's talking about learning, she's not just talking about learning information. She's talking about changing and that it's okay for you to change aspects of yourself over your life, to change your views on things, to integrate new information into who you are. And it's about experiences too. I like that Mm -hmm. she highlighted that as it's living through different activities and not just like a book knowledge pursuit. Yeah. Learning through talking to other people, seeing other perspectives and experiencing different things. 
So overall, it sounds like you had a positive reading experience. What are your general thoughts before we dig in? Um, I thought the length was pretty good. Um, right around 200 pages is, if it was it's a- not even. Yeah, if it was a, well, it's 192. <laughs> a, a, apologize everyone again. So like on our um, buddy reads, if you hear pages turning, it's because we're looking at notes. Yes, we have lots of notes. So overall, it was a good length for like an essay response. If I was trying to read like a actual memoir about her life or a biography, I would expect it to be a lot longer. But um, well, you're in luck. There are lots of those you can pick from. <laughs> have you ever read an Eleanor Roosevelt biography? No, I still have to read my Theodore Roosevelt biographies before I. Well, that's a good place to <laughs> start. To work your way through the family. I, I like the breakdown of the topics. Is like I felt like they all blended together, but were also separated enough and. There was some that resonated more with me, um, like the readjustment chapter, as well as the right to be an individual. Did you have one that kind of resonated with you more than the others? I think that's interesting because I actually liked the first few more. And then chapter, well, or essay seven, the right to be an individual was one that I started to not like as much. Ooh, okay. Overall, I did really enjoy reading this and I felt like I got a lot out of it. I think it could be safe to say that if you're into self-help and you read a lot of self-help books, you could read this and recognize a lot of the messages because it's very similar to what's being taught today. So this was written in 1960 and you can tell that in some of the language that she uses, it's out of date and some of the social norms that she talks about out of date. But the advice is definitely reads like a modern self-help book. Yeah. And she's coming from a place of different experience. Like she was yeah. one of the first modern first ladies that took passion projects and was really involved in like... Not just that. She was super involved in the politics. She had to be. Like with her husband being like relegated to a wheelchair, she was like the public face of the administration for a lot of events. So. Yeah. And then to complement that with being a representative at the United Nations on human rights and all of those. So she's coming from a good place of experience mm -hmm. and it's not just pushing like a random agenda. She's coming from a good oh, place totally. of experience. And I would say it's rather modern for 1960 as well. She was very like ahead of her time on a lot of those things. Yeah. And I think that's probably why a lot of it rings true today. I will say just reading experience wise, the way that I read this, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone because I kind of read this quickly over the last few days because we needed to record this episode. <laughs> and I meant to read it like one essay every few days over the previous month. But of course, you can't always plan out your reading life perfectly to a T. There are other books that had my attention, other projects. So I would say this is a book that I would recommend reading one essay, letting it sit with you for a while maybe just reading one per day rather than the way that I read it where I was reading like chunks of it at a time, multiple essays in a row. I kind of like that they flow, like you said before, they flow from one to the other really well. There's a lot of repeating themes, but I think that you'll notice the way that they resonate even if you read one at a time a little bit more intentionally. I did three at a time over four days, which was good for me to absorb everything because I would make notes and, and draw lines that made connections. Mm -hmm. So 
three chapters was a good chunk for me to absorb and refer back and then space it out over about a four day span. So yeah, if you like me and you read 20 pages and you're through the first chapter and you can't stop because that's how I am. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd say about three chapters would be good just to still absorb all the content. Every reader is different. I just felt like I would get more out of reading one at a time. And part of that is just because I was taking a lot of notes, so I wasn't reading at my normal speed, which was a good thing. But I can see myself reading this again. Just to see, like, down the line? or Oh, definitely, because yeah. I think a lot of this advice, it means something to me now as a 26-year-old person, like, still figuring out my career and all of that. I think it will mean something in the future when we have children, and I think it'll mean something completely different after children reach certain ages and milestones. Mm -hmm. And she wrote this as a grandmother, and her insights were still for pretty much any age range. I think you could get something completely different out of this. And I think it would just be really interesting to reflect and look at my notes from my first read at this age Mm -hmm. and see what resonates more at a different age and stage of life. Did you identify with the English teacher from the first chapter where Eleanor's talking about her development with learning where the teacher ripped up one of the girl's papers while she was reading it? Yes, absolutely. When I was teaching, so I talk about being an English teacher, but for people who don't know, I'm not in the classroom right now just because of weird army moves. But... um, Over the last few years, I got a lot of pushback from students in my classroom if they didn't have teachers before me who made them think for themselves, if they did a lot of comprehension work and worksheets rather than writing and sort of explaining in their own words and developing their own thoughts. And eventually, like Eleanor, they got it, and I like to think that they appreciated it, but I totally related to that part. And... Um, I actually, throughout this entire book, a lot of what really struck me were her comments on education. Yeah. Well, the first chapter is all about learning how to learn, which talks about childhood education and how she was brought up. The Like you're talking about, the best thing that I brought from it was that in the long run, it doesn't matter what you're reading. It's what you process through your own mind and create Mm -hmm. your own ideas and impressions. So like it's a reflection of your own reading and your own analysis rather than just regurgitating what you read on a page. Yeah. So that's the cool part that I took from it. A lot of what stuck in my mind was related to my experience as a teacher with kids who all had iPads in the classroom. So our school had a grant for students to have one-to-one technology. And a lot of the teachers who had been around for a while, I'll put it that way, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, even some students sometimes, there would be conversations around, well, what are we even here for if the kids can just look up everything on an iPad? Or what are we teaching this for if the kids are just going to Google it or are just going to find a paper to plagiarize? And the quote, the first quote that I wrote down was... Education provides the necessary tools, equipment by which we learn how to learn. The object of all our education and all the development which is a part of education is to give every one of us an instrument which we can use to acquire information anytime we need it. That struck me because I think in these changing times, 
yes, we do have all of these options where kids can learn things online and they can be independent learners. The goal is you want them to be independent learners. I don't want a student to need me after they graduate, but you should see what kids put in a Google search engine when they're looking for an answer. Like there, there are ways to teach kids how to be good stewards of information, how to analyze information, and how to find information that are better than the way that they're doing it themselves. And it, there, it does require teachers to get through that process, I think. And I think you can teach and guide someone, even if you think of it more as coaching, to be an independent thinker. That's me getting on my soapbox about education a little bit, but so much of what she was saying was echoing my thoughts over the last few years of what is my job here? Yeah, well, she's highlighting the contrast between the girl that wrote down everything that the teacher said during a lecture in her paper and read it back to her versus taking in the same content, applying your own level of thought to it, and then coming up with your own ideas. Right. So a big part of the class that I'm in right now is teaching us how to think, not what to think. Mm-hmm. So it's that's the difference in a lot of the modern day education is, and something that I like that Eleanor highlights is, She's encouraging people to have their own thoughts, have their own ideas, because that's the essential part of it is you're not just a robot regurgitating facts and figures and what you think people want to hear. You're applying your own perspective to everything, Mm -hmm. which I liked. Yeah. And I just think it was impressive to me that she was writing about this before this big boom in the internet age of information. Another thing that I wrote down from... The first essay in all caps was spirit of adventure, because that's something that is echoed throughout the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. And I thought of, you know, how whenever you and I kind of go through a bump or something unexpected gets thrown our way, we kind of like sassily say, well, it's an adventure. (laughs) Or like when people are asking us, where are you going next? Where's the army moving you? We go, it's an adventure. We don't know. It's an adventure. (laughs) And... I think that we say it kind of sarcastically. At least I know it's kind of sarcasm for me because I would much rather have a very clear 10-year plan and know exactly where I'm headed. But reading her talking about having the spirit of adventure sort of made me maybe rethink my attitude a little bit about all of that and think maybe next time I need to not say that sarcastically and actually be serious about, well, it's an adventure. (laughs) I think the other component that starts in this chapter and then continues throughout the rest of the book is like adaptability and not being so focused on where you are right now and having the ability for flexibility. So later on in this chapter, um, she's saying that we have to have a flexibility in our minds and being able to absorb new ideas instead of shutting windows and pulling down shades and saying, I've learned all I need to know. My opinions are fixed. I refuse to change or consider new things. So I feel like in the 60s, when this was written, that was a big component where people were, the way they were, they were raised, like pre-World War II, it was, a lot of that stuff was impacting the culture, but there was still like the counterculture stuff of the 60s and 70s that was happening. And Eleanor realized that a lot of people were either going to have to change how they thought about things or they were going to get left behind in the dust and the culture was going to change right in front of them. So that's something that we both have seen happen in our lifetime. I was going to say, it it really echoes today. Yeah, but it's it shows the danger of inflexibility of the mind, where no matter what happens, you can't change your mind. 
you know you're right about everything and you just can't change. Mm -hmm. So I like that she highlights that and it's something that comes up later. But it's an essential part about lifelong learning is you have to be flexible in new ideas. Definitely, because there's no way to learn everything. But I think the pursuit of knowledge, Eleanor would agree, the pursuit of knowledge is the most important thing, not the knowledge itself. Um, did you have a lot on the second chapter? Because I didn't really. The fear the great enemy? Yeah. Okay, I'm only, I'm just going to read one quote and we're not going to comment it on it and we're just going to move on but I think I have to read it, okay. Today, the world faces a great challenge. On one side, a government preserved by fear. Oh, you highlighted it too. <laughs> Continue. On one side, a government preserved by fear. On the other, a government of free men. I haven't ever believed that anything supported by fear can stand against freedom from fear. Surely we cannot be so stupid as to let ourselves become shackled by senseless fears. The result of that would be to have a system of fear imposed on us. The uses of time chapter resonated with me a lot. And I think it kind of played off of the fear chapter. And the quote that I really liked was that she learned that the ability to attain an inner calm, regardless of outer turmoil, is a kind of strength. So I've had that in my life where regardless of what's going on outside, whatever factors are like influencing me, if I can have inner peace about it and inner optimism then I can focus my tasks and my time because I will make my time worthwhile and count for something, which she talks about later on is like taking the time that we have, applying it to tasks that are important and making our time actually count for something. I, so when she talked about developing the inner calm, one of the examples that she used was Eleanor had shit to do and she had all these little children running around and she was like, I would sit in the same room as my children because I loved them, but... I had shit to do. So they were running around screaming and I had to find the inner calm to focus on my own thing in order to keep myself sane and happy. I, li I liked how she had a doctor tell her son that he had to lie perfectly still for an hour. <laughs> and he's like seven or eight years old. And like, what kid at seven is going to lie perfectly still on a floor? But my point was that I wrote down Eleanor Roosevelt was clearly not a highly sensitive person. No. Because like in a lot of noise and situations like that, it's hard to explain to someone who's not highly sensitive, but it like almost feels like my nerves are frayed at the edges. And I can keep calm, like I can keep calm in a class, in a rowdy classroom because I have some semblance of control, I guess, but I get really tired after the fact. Yeah. And so I can't necessarily concentrate when things like that are going on. Like today, I was trying to read and you had the TV on and I was like, please, can you turn that off? Because I just couldn't, couldn't do it. Sometimes if I'm zoned in and I'm focused enough, sure. But as a highly sensitive person who literally like my nervous system is wired a certain way, inner calm, I get that that can be a spiritual thing. I can, I can work towards that, but like an actual physical Calm and focus, despite outer circumstances, is really, really difficult for me. And if you don't know about highly sensitive person or HSP, and some of what I'm saying is ringing true for you, I highly recommend Googling that. There are some books on it, and it's helped me understand myself a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I've had that experience just where a lot of things will be happening, and it's part of my job where you have to be able to process and not freak out and like have that internal calmness in order to process things um like it was a big thing when i was a battle captain in afghanistan where like we'd have helicopters flying in multi different like air different areas 
um, special forces people in contact, getting shot at, some people needing medical evacuation. Mm -hmm. So I'd have to be scrambling. Like I would have be on three different phone calls, talking to people, coordinating for, you know, attack helicopters to shoot at people, medical choppers to go pick up the guys that were getting shot. That's a lot of overwhelming stuff that could like potentially cause you to shut down. But you have to like, what I would do for myself is I would just like take a breath and breathe Mm -hmm. through my nose turn to my staff that was there and just be like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Do you feel like there's a certain level of adrenaline that kicks in with that too, though, that sort of overrides and makes you calm Most in of, a way? For sure. But it also can have the opposite effect. Like sure. people will get so hopped up on adrenaline that they can't focus. Yeah. For me, it's the opposite. Like uh, the more stuff that's happening that is trying to like cause me to freak out mm-hmm. causes me to calm down and make good, like actually make decisions. It's good. For you and your line of work that you have that. Yeah. I just had a really hard time imagining reading my book with screaming children all around me. <laughs> Did you see where she channels the 1960 version of Ron Swanson? With, no. When, when you were talking about concentration? Okay, read this and tell me <laughs> what you think of. Um, learning to concentrate to give all your attention to the thing at hand and then to be able to put it aside and go on to the next thing without confusion. Oh. <laughs> That's classic, never half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. (laughs) Yes. That Eleanor Roosevelt is Ron Swanson, boom, done. Analysis complete. She loves people a lot more than Ron Swanson does. Also, she loves government a lot more than Ron Swanson does. (laughs) She loves her some government. But it's true. Like you have the focus has to be on whatever your current task is, and if you're trying to juggle too many things at once you're going to lose the ability to get things done. And I know it's kind of ironic with the listener question where we're talking about reading multiple things at the same time, but it's different and I'm going to maintain (laughs) it's different. But maybe part of reading multiple books at the same time is that you have to be able to devote your attention to what you're reading in the moment. It doesn't work very well if you're looking at your phone while you're reading or if other things are going on. And... For instance, I have barely read any of the nonfiction that's been on my list because I've been so focused on Seven Fallen Feathers, and I'm fine with it because I've been able to lend so much more focus and attention to that specific book. I haven't been able to spread it out, but I think with that book, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Number one takeaway, folks, Eleanor Roosevelt is Ron's one. <laughs> okay, you said that readjustment is endless resonated a lot with you. And I'm really curious about that because she, at the beginning of the chapter, makes some remarks generalizing women that I found really interesting. So I'm curious to hear your takeaways. I mean, I highlighted the first two sentences where it says that women have an advantage over men throughout history. They've been forced to make adjustments. I can, like, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that. But the way that I interpreted it is in the classic household sense when the man makes the money the woman is at the house make like making the home and raising the kids a lot of times they would have to adjust their expectations about how their life was going to play out and their own goals and aspirations and careers would kind of be subservient to their husband's goals and aspirations and that was kind of like i feel like it was happening on for a long time centuries up until about like what would you say like 50 years ago I think it's still happening. Yeah. But I think it goes deeper than that too, that women aren't just forced to adjust because of life circumstances like that. Mm -hmm. They're also forced to adjust because they're conditioned to be people pleasers, not just pleasing the men in their lives, but to please people in general. Yeah. 
And that's very, very real. It's something I find myself reacting against at least once or twice a week at minimum. And so women are have been sort of forced to adjust because of the expectation that they have to be good and to be people pleasers. And then when she was saying that men sort of just expect things to adjust to them and meet their needs, women sort of expect that they'll have to shape things. I I just felt like that resonated and rang so true. <laughs> Still today, and a lot of it is conditioning. People can argue all that they want to about, you know, maternal instinct, but I would argue that fathers have those instincts as well. Mm-hmm. It's just about expectations about yeah. who would have and to adjust. Not to mention, like, we're only talking about hetero couples here. Mm-hmm. The two things that I, like, highlighted and connected with the most were when she's talking about readjustment can be either a private revolution where like internally after you learn a new concept or you have a new framework of a knowledge then you have to readjust how you live based on that like change or it's a readjustment that's not your choice where it's like a circumstance-based thing so we've experienced both of those things where we either change our worldview based on situations that have happened to us and like we just have to adjust to meet the world as it is or we're intentionally seeking out new knowledge and that's changing how we think about a certain thing and that's adjusting how we would normally feel about a thing so that was the part that i liked is if we're on this quest for a lifelong learning you have to be willing to change how you see things because the way that you feel right now isn't always going to be the right way or how if it accurately reflect how the world is so you have to have that flexibility and be willing to change yeah and yeah i ended up liking the message of this chapter it just took me a little while to process the beginning just because it it did hit me kind of hard of like oh i'm still conditioned to be a people pleaser and to be the one who adjusts you're really good about making adjustments yourself and i think that Obviously, everyone's partner is different. Mm -hmm. But in general, I kind of understood what she was saying. A lot of resistance that we see to the world changing is coming from men. I think that's fair to say. I'd agree with that. And when we think about when she says men expect everything to adjust to them and to meet their needs, because that's how they've gone through life for centuries, it makes sense. But I refuse to think that men can't be flexible and caring and adjust themselves and adjust their worldviews like you were saying in order to accommodate a new and changing world it's a choice like you can either choose to adapt and be flexible in that sense that we're talking about or you can be like she was talking about earlier and just close the shades be set and fight against it just actively resist change and I'd agree with you that it's partially like the older generation because it always is when change happens. It's the older generation is like, we're just going to keep doing it how we've been doing it. And she even mentioned that when in the 60s where it's all these people that were raised like pre-1900s or like this is how you should be raising your household and doing those things. But it is very much in a patriarchal society like it's been for centuries where men are used to having everything adapt the to power, them. power, basically. And, but... er- and everything adapt to how mm-hmm. they want it to be. It's 
more difficult for them to adapt unless they're making unless... I don't think it's more difficult for them to adapt. I think it makes them resist more. Either way, but it's a good like clarification. It, you're going to see more resistance from those that have had the benefits of the flexibility going how would I say this? Who've had the benefit of the world being shaped for them. Right. Yeah. By the time that I got to the end of the chapter, that's the message that I drew from it. And I really felt that. And the other thing is, like at the beginning, Eleanor Roosevelt talks about women sort of being the ones who adjust and mold themselves to fit. And she didn't say it and say this is wrong, but she also didn't say this is the way it should be. Yeah. Did you also notice that she talked about the Soviets a lot? Oh my goodness. Almost every single essay. Yeah. So 1960, what was going on over in Russia? It's all communism stuff. So, right. And it's all, when like, was the Red Scare? Around this time. So, so it must have just been like definitely on her mind. She's obviously working on mostly that at the UN. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was flowing through everything. I found that fascinating. I think the it was threads of history. To like pick all up. the times that she's wrapping up the chapters, she's talking about how it's done in this, like in Soviet Russia. <laughs> government does not change <laughs> but yeah so edu- like she's talking about education in the soviet union um later on she's talking about like working and co- communism versus capitalism so that's like a underlying factor in this whole book is how the democratic system in the united states fares against communism because it was the 60s right and communism was all the rage so. Yeah, I found that really interesting. And I just thought it was interesting. Like anytime that she mentioned a an icon, like um, in on page 105 and 106, she talked about Harry Belafonte going and performing at the school. Yeah. Um, anytime that she mentioned a significant world leader or a big historical event, those were the parts that I really found fascinating. So I think I'm going to have to read her autobiography because... A lot of what I loved in here, more than the advice possibly, were her short anecdotes and her stories. That's what I really found myself interested in and hooked on, even though her advice was easy to reflect on and was really fascinating to sort of chew on. Um, I kind of felt like in the middle here, we see a lot of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of demonstrating, which is of the times, but demonstrating sort of an, a lack of understanding about modern mental health issues. And she talks about race issues in here and privilege, but just with sort of the like, you can do anything if you put your mind to it message. Isn't that like still permeating the self-help culture totally. today? Like, So there's... A really fascinating resistance against that, though. Like, one of the most popular self-help books right now is Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis, who is super rich, talks about how she's self-made, blah, blah, blah. She did have, I think, a difficult upbringing, but her message is basically this of, you get to decide to be happy. Pull yourself up yourself, and you can do anything. And that's sort of missing some of these intersectional things about, like, well... Not everybody can just one day decide to be happy to, you know, um, and it was easier to take it from a memoir written in 1960 and to read through that. And actually later, Eleanor Roosevelt actually does mention, I know some people will sort of push back on me because I don't give enough room for people with mental health issues. 
But then she goes on to say, but I really believe you can do it if you try. (laughs) But it's easier to swallow that from Eleanor Roosevelt than it is from modern people who perhaps could do some research and could know better and do better. Yeah. So I think that we're going to see a really active resistance to that. And I'm really curious about the self-help books that come out of the movement of trying to seek a more (sighs) equitable space for self-care, self-help, and those messages that can really actually reach everyone. Yeah. So I'm curious to see what comes out of that. But that's definitely a tangent. I'll link to a couple of articles about the Rachel Hollis book. I have not read it, so I'm speaking about what I've read about it, and I don't plan on reading it. So, okay, were we talking about the right to be an individual? Uh, We were right about there. Did you have anything you wanted to say about the usefulness? No. Me neither. This one I actually skimmed and kind of skipped over because I just didn't find it helpful. So I'm curious to know, since you cited it as one of the chapters that you liked the best. I liked it um, mainly because it's talking about, I think it's the underlying threat of communism that kind of permeates through this whole book where everybody needs to be the same. Um, You're just all contributing towards the goal of the state. Everybody gets theirs in the end and everybody's Mm -hmm. equal on an equal playing field. And I don't know where she has this conviction or whether it's from all the letters that were being sent to her, but she's really telling people that are reading this book, being an individual is important. And it's the part that I took away from it was, it's your life, but only if you make it so. So if you're willing to surrender your individuality to support the state or whatever you're devoting your life to, and you let other people and all those factors set your standards for how you should behave, you don't have your own convictions about anything, you don't harbor any truths about what's right and wrong, then you've basically surrendered your life as an individual. And that's, to me, that's not a good way to live. Mm-hmm. So, and I know people might say that's ironic because, you know, I, you're in the I'm army, in the where army where you wear a uniform every day to and, work. <laughs> and they actually write out a list of values that I'm supposed to have and exemplify. <laughs> but it, I, I get that irony. But the whole point of that is I subscribe to a certain set of beliefs that are centered on helping people. Mm-hmm. And for the better, and for like, it's a self sacrificial thing. So, for the benefit of others, I will act in this way. And in the same way, she's saying for individuals, like stand up to your convictions Mm -hmm. is like the big part of it. So don't be swayed by the waves of popular opinion and whatever pop culture or the media or whatever is trying to tell you this is how you Social media, all the pretty houses that people are posting, all of the food that they're posting, this is how you should eat, this is what you should wear. Yeah. All of those products, I mean, we don't, live in a communist society but consumerism and capitalism totally like tries to get you to buy the same things as everybody else yeah and the distinction that she says is it's a courageous thing to be an individual and sometimes it's lonely because you're going against the grain of all of this popular opinion Mm -hmm. but it's better to be an individual versus somebody who is just like everybody else who is basically nobody I, so as I was skimming that, I, one, had the thought about social media and how that's maybe the main area of focus. Um, From today's perspective? Yeah, Yeah. just because it's easy to see someone's pictures and think like, oh, that's how I want my life to be and to mold it to that, but that's boring. Develop your own sense of style. Come up with your own family traditions, all of that. 
I thought you would have something from chapter eight, how to get the best out of people because you're a leader. This is a lot of what you're learning right now. I thought that I loved how she focused on seeing people, tailoring communication to them, being empathetic. A lot of what she says, she doesn't use the modern term, but what she's talking about is cultural sensitivity, which I thought was awesome in that chapter. And she talks about having a changing world and adapting to the people that you're working with, being a good listener. Her empathy really shines through this book. She talks about how much she loves meeting different people and seeing the world through their perspectives. And that was another common thread that I saw throughout a lot of these essays. Yeah. She hit the nail on the head with the mutual respect as the basis of all civilized human relationships. Um, that's one of the army values. That's core to how we operate. And that's the really most important part that I highlighted is, and like caveating off of what you just had is, you have to respect where people come from, what their perspectives are, and be willing to see things from their point of view and be, mm-hmm. empa- and be empathetic. So that's the only thing that I took from that chapter. I also wrote in my notes that at this point, this is getting sometimes repetitive. Well, yeah, because things that she talks about early in the book come back around later on. I skimmed the chapter on facing responsibility. There wasn't a lot in there. And I kind of wrote like this. some of this is also ringing true to the whole girl wash your face thing. But was that was that in the same chapter? Oh, where she talks about... Um, like making the hard choices. Am I going to live up to my beliefs? She brings up a story about prejudice and a couple who is at a dinner party and basically their friends were being racist and they stood up and the people were like, where are you going? And they said, we like you very much, but it makes us so unhappy to hear all this hatred that we must go. And they just got up and left. And I think, you know, today conversations have to be had, you know, calling people in and saying, what did you mean by that? Can I explain to you how it's wrong? But you know what? Sometimes those conversations go nowhere and you have to protect yourself and you have to put up boundaries and you have to draw the line. And I just had so much admiration for someone just getting up and leaving and saying, we're not down for this. This is against our beliefs. This is against our morals and standing up for right and wrong. Because a lot of What she's been saying throughout this book has been a lot of, there's gray area, make sure you understand where other people are coming from. But I like that in this chapter, she establishes on certain issues, there is right and there is wrong. And you need to decide which side you're on and you need to stand up when you need to stand up. Again, a lot of parallels from this book to today, which Mm -hmm. was really interesting to see just a lot like how it can ring true for people. Yeah. And like I said before, as someone conditioned to be a people pleaser, and that's in my nature too. It's not just that I've been conditioned to be that way. Um, It is really hard to sometimes draw lines and draw boundaries like that. And it would take a lot of guts for me to stand up and say something like that and just walk out. But I, I want to, I aspire to do that and to be the person that is so strong in their convictions that they're willing to be uncomfortable or cause a scene if they really have to. But be be the individual. <laughs> be the individual. Be, be the individual. <laughs> have their convictions. Um I also like Listen to Eleanor. <laughs> I also wrote down at the end of that chapter she says there are no perfect choices. 
And as an Enneagram one perfectionist, that just was balm to my soul because I can get really hung up on like, what's the right choice here? Or did I mess up or anything like that? And for someone to say there are no perfect choices, I don't know. I just found that really freeing. Did you have any comments on the last couple of chapters? The last two chapters were very politically focused. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, mainly because I'm in, we're both in a public service industry, you for education, me for the military. And I, I love this quote from Teddy Roosevelt where he's saying that a man's first duty is to support himself and his family. And the next is to serve his country, not only in a time of war, but whenever and wherever he's needed. So the distinction I like that she makes is that it's not only in extremists that people should serve. Like earlier in the book, she talks about um, like people pushing and shoving on a subway and then a girl has her leg get stuck and people flock around her to like help her and get her up and get her out from underneath. And then they go right back to pushing and shoving and Mm -hmm. like being in it for themselves. I like that she focuses on if we're trying to build a better society, service is a big part of that. And I liked with the political part of it, she's saying that that starts at your local level. It isn't just like latching on to a national political party because you're not really influencing a lot unless you're in that realm. Right. But you can do a whole lot to influence your local politics. Your community, your education board, your mayor. Yep. That's where you're going to make your most Mm -hmm. impact is like participating where you are, like just being where you're at and being involved. And it's amazing how that reverberates up to the top. Yeah, because if you're active locally, it reflects at the state and national level. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem that I see in today's day and age is everybody wants to identify with national issues and doesn't really focus on what's going on in their backyard. Like you could ask them like a local agenda or a local issue and they wouldn't know, but they're all on Twitter and Instagram with stuff that's happening on national politics. Mm -hmm. So I, I like that change of perspective where she's emphasizing, start small, start at your lowest level, get that in order, participate that's the other part is just participating like the number one thing that she mentions is voting and we already know where the state of voting is in the united states like mm-hmm. half half the people do it half the people don't and that's and some of the people can't well, for various reasons but the whole point is that that's the number one thing if you're able to is that's how you should participate in politics mm-hmm. is have convictions be informed is the other part so i like the word she's talking about like throughout the book is Things can change, your opinions can change, whether you're talking about personal issues or about politics. And she's like emphasizes in here, look at your sources of information. So she mentions like politicians, the media, what's determined as a fact. She says politicians, the media, analysts, and discussion with your peers. That was the cool part too, is like you can absorb all this information, but if you can't present it intelligently and like one of those iron sharpens iron situations where you have people that disagree and talk to each other and then can kind of mold into a compromise and see things from other people's perspective that's the other important part in how you should develop your thought process well and she even said you might not be able to compromise but at the very least by having that conversation with someone you have 
cemented your beliefs or you've clarified your ideas in words so that they're more clear to yourself so you can use that in the next discussion yeah like you don't like when i argue on facebook with like about politics and stuff but i told you that it like from this perspective it helps me solidify my beliefs so i have to do the right around research i have to find the facts that i'm going to use and because i like confrontation I'm i'm a old school debater from high school. So Mm -hmm. I I gather my facts. I know what I'm going to bring up and I'm a three. So I want to win. Like that's the whole point of being an Enneagram three, but I'm also solidifying my own beliefs by having that confrontation. So, and I understand that, but I think just from my personality, I would rather be having a discussion with someone like in person because the internet feels so impersonal and people are very thoroughly cemented in their ways. But I think that when you're faced with the human face-to-face, you can't help but listen a little bit better, I think. Yeah, it, it just goes with the way that today's society is where everybody's so spaced out. Yeah, I guess. That a lot of that conversation has to happen virtually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have I have mixed feelings on, like I said... She talks about the importance of discussion and the importance of seeing the gray area, but it's really hard to talk about issues where there's a clear right and wrong and to argue that and discuss it. I just think that the important thing that she points out is get educated. So whatever source you're using, like talk, get it from multiple perspectives in order to develop your thing. Well, and I found it so fascinating that she was talking about like, analysts and the media have their own angle even in 1960 which people today want to talk about like oh the golden age of journalism way back in the day when everyone was just reporting facts and here eleanor roosevelt is basically saying like no that is never how it was that's a fantasy you need to read the newspaper and listen to the radio and talk to your friend and read a book and yes it's a lot more work but you need to listen to these multiple sources and find the facts for yourself. And I that just gave me so much joy. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what I have been teaching my students to do. And if they can do it, then why can't grown-ups? Because grown-ups can't, because it's hard. <laughs> Cry me a river. <laughs> you, you and I both are on the same page on this, where you get it from multiple perspectives, you develop your own convictions but still have that flexibility where you have the ability to have your mind changed like if somebody presents you with a different idea you have to be willing to receive that i don't want to make it sound like we're perfect citizens though no but i I feel like we have a good healthy relationship with information i think we've been developing that over the last few years and i think because we are avid learners that that makes a big difference yeah because we're willing to change and willing to seek out that information, even if it takes a little bit longer. Yeah. I didn't really get much out of learning to be a public servant because I never plan on running for office, and I sure hope you don't either. Nope. <laughs> like, I thought she was going to talk more like she had earlier, where it's about just selfless, like, not always in a time of war or in a political sense, but just being the right person at the right place at the right time for the right reasons like in for the normal stuff but this chapter just turned out to be like if you want to run for office this is how you should act 
Yes. Or what you should be ready for. So like public service is more than just being a politician or being in the army or being a teacher. It's being active in your community and having causes that you have convictions about and trying to make the world a better place. So someone who we know that is a true role model for all of that, for devoting time and resources to an important cause is our friend Ruthann. And you might know her as definitely RA on Instagram. Every year, she not only participates, but also leads a team of advocates for Dressember. Dressember is an annual challenge to wear a dress or a tie, depending on your style, every day for the whole month of December as a conversation starter about human trafficking and modern slavery. Unfortunately, there are millions of instances of slavery around the globe today, probably even in your own state. You can take action by donating through Ruthann's team, joining her team, and spreading the word by sharing her posts and stories on Instagram at the hashtag DressSemberWithRA. We will link to all of this info in the show notes, which you can find at hereadsheread.org, and you can also visit DefinitelyRA on Instagram and check out her DressSember highlights. We both highly recommend donating to this organization, or if you feel like you can't donate, just spread the word. And Ruthann is a wealth of information and she's very open to questions and is an enthusiastic conversation participant. So um, if you want some more information, she'll be able to either have a chat with you or explain some more resources. So that's our little plug for the week. Do you have any other recommendations of the week? Because it sounds like we kind of... I think we wrapped it up. I think we wrapped up, Eleanor. I think we did too. So recommendation for the week We've kind of been on a true crime kick for the last, I don't know, maybe a year or longer. Um, but we're watching Manhunter right now. Mindhunter. <sighs> it's okay. So tired. You know what? We've both been kind of off this week. I, I'm i remarkably proud of us for how we got through that episode because both of us did not feel well today. Nope, oh, we made it work. High five. Go team. Okay, we've been watching Mindhunter. Let me start from the beginning and we just delete the whole thing. No, I like that people can see that we're human. <laughs> people don't want to know that we're human. They just want to know we're funny. Yeah, they do. They should know that we were fighting about money before we started recording. Then they'll really be like, their marriage is for real. Why are you putting our business on the podcast? <laughs> They're just like us. <laughs> so yes, we've been watching Mindhunter on Netflix. Uh, Jonathan Groff is fantastic as a FBI behavioral science agent. You were just making fun of his acting the other day. He's very robotic, but this past episode where he's <laughs> like his partner is like falling apart because of all the murder and things that they're investigating and it's really getting to him. But the fact that Jonathan Groff is just like sitting at his computer punching wait it's typewriter. It's the seventies, so no typewriter. Yeah. So he's at his typewriter <laughs> transcribing with, transcribing notes <laughs> that are he's listening and the his partner just looks at him. He's just like, that guy's immune to all this stuff. He's very robotic, but it's a cool insight to look at 1970s FBI where they didn't really understand serial killers and they just didn't even have the terminology yet. So it's the formation of spree killers and organized versus disorganized personalities and how that works and kind of plays off um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark and Serial and all these other true crime stuff that we've been listening to over the last couple of years. 
And I'm looking forward to the end of this season and season two. And it's based on a book, which we didn't even bring up in our book two television adaptations. No. I think we had just started watching it like right after that, and we haven't read the book. But I'm kind of interested in the book now. Well, the book brings up the stuff that's going to be in season two and stuff like that. So it's like the full life's work for both of those agents. Yeah. So we'll um, link to the book in the show notes for that as well. What's your recommendation for the week? My recommendation kind of goes with You Learn by Living by Eleanor Roosevelt in that I use it as my guide for life a little bit. Um, or I I get a lot out of the episodes of this podcast. And when I was reading Eleanor Roosevelt's memoir and gaining the advice from it and sort of feeling soothed by it, it reminded me of The Next Right Thing podcast by Emily P. Freeman, which is a weekly podcast. And Emily P. Freeman is an author. And she started this podcast with the goal of helping people ease decision fatigue. And that's just a small part of what the podcast really does. But um, each episode is like a meditation for me. She connects it to her faith. And so she connects it. It's Christian based, but I think that you can get a lot out of it, even if you are not a practicing Christian or if you're of a different faith, just because it's it's very more spiritual and practical advice. She has a really soothing voice. And whenever I listen to it, I really feel calmed and assured. Sometimes I feel called to action, but it's it's hard to explain, but I can't recommend it enough. It's short, like 15 minutes max, 10 to 15 minute episodes. So it's a nice quick meditation and she transcribes the podcast. So you can look up the notes and reread it, almost like a devotional or a blog post, something like that. So you can go back and write things down. So I want to recommend The Next Right Thing. And she just announced that she's turning it into a book. Well, that's good. So I love listening to the podcast, but I like the idea of having it in a book so that if I ever wanted to just flip to a certain thing, like flip to a certain chapter when I'm making a decision or when I'm thinking about something... I can do that without having to open up all of the transcription notes for each episode. Okay. Uh, We want to say thank you for subscribing and sharing He Read, She Read. We love reading your comments, posts, and reviews each week. Uh, We're announcing our buddy read for December is Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mosley. Synopsis is set in the late 1940s in the African-American community of Watts, Los Angeles. Devil in a Blue Dress follows Easy Rollins, a black war veteran just fired from his job at a defense plant. Easy is drinking in a friend's bar, wondering how he's going to meet his mortgage when a white man in a linen suit walks in, offering good money if Easy will simply locate Miss Daphne Monet, a blonde beauty known to frequent black jazz clubs. It sounds good, doesn't it? I don't really know a lot about it, but it sounds noir and mysterious, and I like it. Um, If you haven't already left us a review on iTunes, please do. More reviews equals better rankings, and that equals more learning this Did I say learning this? Wow. I need to sleep. Uh, <laughs> equals more nerdy listeners, folks. There we go. Um, we love reading your reviews, so please hop on 
Apple Podcast app or iTunes and leave us those reviews. Uh, you can also contact us on social media or email. So Twitter and Instagram, that's at HeRedSheRed. Email HeRedSheRedPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. And remember, the couple that reads together. Lives to learn and learns to